If you'd like to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, that's where we're going to be reading about the death of Herod. So Natalie's going to come up and share with us, and then we have a little snack for all of the kids here. So come up here, Natalie. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration upon them. The people were shouting, the voice of God and not of man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem and they, when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Natalie. Today is a family service, so that's why we have some of the families involved in handing out communion or in reading scripture. And because it's a family service, I understand how antsy kids might get. And I thought, well, it would be really good if they had a snack. And what more appropriate of a snack for us to have after reading that passage than gummy worms, right? Because Herod was eaten by worms, I thought it would be just great for us to have some gummy worms. So kids, get permission, but if you would like, you can come down front here, and we have some gummy worms for you. I shouldn't say just for the kids. I would say, because I know Nate loves his candy, but if you would like gummy worms, I've got enough for anybody who would like them. But kids, come on down. And then if your parents let you, maybe this can distract you while you're listening to me talk for a little bit. There you go. They're a little bit sour. They're probably not too sour for you, though, right? No, just one, just one. He's like, can I take three? <laughs> I don't blame him. All right. I'll tell you what, I didn't know there were this many kids here. They just come out of the woodwork, just like under the pews. Awesome. Yeah. Boom. Yeah, you can take one, yep. All right. What more? I know. I know. Oh, I'm. I'm. Okay. Now we're gonna get into this. I don't know if I can throw. My arm's not that good. All right. I, <laughs> I got some for you, Mark. All right. When you come up and you sing at the end, I'll put one on your keyboard for you. But I got a bunch more here for you. All right. Well, I thought that that would be just a really, like I said, a really fitting snack for our time as we look at the death of Herod in the book of Acts. And so I'll try to finish by the time the kids finish their gummy worms. That would be incredible. That would be really fast. So maybe I won't finish that quickly, but it's all good. So if you remember, last week we found that the church was in a pretty tough spot, right? They were going through a trial. They were going through difficulty. They were going through a really difficult time as the church, Herod Agrippa, king of the Jews, beheaded James, the brother of John. You know, it's an interesting fact that James was the first apostle who was martyred, but then his brother John actually was never killed. It's like, they, and they cap the beginning of 
the martyrs of the apostles, and then John, obviously, we read in his, his writings. But James and John, they were brothers, sons of Zebedee. Jesus called them the sons of thunder. These two were really close. And here we see James being beheaded by Herod in what must have been a gut punch to the early church. I mean, it just must have rocked them when they saw one of their leaders taken out like this. Not only did James get beheaded, right, but Herod saw how this pleased the Jews, and as a result, he had Peter arrested with the intentions of beheading him also. I'm suddenly thinking this might not be a great family service text to preach from. This is just dawning on me now, but it's okay. We're going to go for it. It's God's word. It's all good, right? But Herod arrested Peter with the intention of beheading him as well. However, note what the church did. The church earnestly prayed. Earnestly prayed. Do you know that God does things when we pray that he wouldn't do if we didn't pray? I don't know how it works, but God in his sovereignty weaves our prayers into his plan. It's incredible. I don't know how God does, but he's God and we're not, right? So the church comprised of a rough, ragtag bunch of weak and powerless people did the only thing that they knew to do, which is often what we neglect to do or turn to as last resort. They earnestly prayed, which means they stretched themselves out to God in prayer because unless God showed up, they knew that they were powerless against the ruthless King Herod who, upon killing James smelt blood in the water, and he was bent on taking out the church. This is an intense moment in the history of the church. This is a moment where we don't really know how things are going to turn out. They didn't. They were in it. They were facing it. They didn't know what the future of the church looked like. Providentially, however, Herod was unable to execute Peter because his arrest took place during Passover. And the law forbade that they, that they perform executions. So on the very last night of Passover, the night before Herod planned to carry out Peter's execution, God sent an angel of the Lord to free Peter from prison. Right at the very last hour, God waited just before Herod had the ability to take him out and God set Peter free. Herod then, finding Peter had escaped, ends up killing the soldiers who were guarding him. That doesn't seem fair, right? Couldn't Peter help them out a little bit? You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't seem right. He just lets them be killed. But that's what Herod does. That's how ruthless he was. He kills the soldiers who were guarding Peter, who were preventing him from escaping. But when God shows up, it really doesn't matter how many guards were there, Right? When the angel of the Lord shows up, there was no stopping what God was going to do. And so suddenly, we see the tide begin to turn. Herod's grip begins to loosen, and he is about to be made an example of before the nations of the world. He's about to be humiliated and go down in history as the king who was eaten by worms. That's gnarly. That's nasty. So whereas Herod at this time in history was looked at as king, and as we'll see later on, thought of himself as being on the same level as God, in reality, he was only a pawn used in service to the true king, 
to the king of kings. And Herod, as it turns out, is just like every other man, destined to become worm food. So with this in mind and set against this backdrop, I just kind of want to look at this passage and I want to share some observations that I had as I was studying and praying and really believing that God, you know, wanted to speak to us through his word because he does that. His word is living and active. And so the first point that I want to make, the first observation, is that we are the underdogs, aren't we? As Christians, we are the underdogs. If you read in the first few verses, it says, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So in this passage, we see Herod's incredible power and authority on full display. After having beheaded John in an unsuccessful attempt at executing Peter, Herod leaves Jerusalem and spend some time in Caesarea. But first, let me refresh your memory and jog your memory of who Herod was. His father, Aristobulus, what an awesome name, that's a really cool name. His father, Aristobulus, was murdered by his own father, Herod the Great. The ruler, if you remember, the ruler who ordered the slaughter of children during the time of Christ's birth. As a child then, the Herod that we read about in this passage, Herod Agrippa, as a child, was sent to Rome to receive an education alongside the imperial family. Talk about good company, right? I mean, this guy was destined to be somebody. This guy was rubbing shoulders with the right people. He was going places, and his future was bright. Well, unfortunately, he wound up getting himself into some trouble, ultimately finding himself in some debt which led to his imprisonment in Rome, only to be freed from prison when his childhood friend, I don't know if you would recognize this name, Caligula, just happens to be one of the most, most ruthless emperors in all of Rome's history. His childhood friend, Caligula, became the emperor, freeing Herod from prison. Not only was he released from jail, but soon after, Herod was named ruler of over the Palestinian provinces. After Caligula's reign ended, Herod grew even more in power because his other childhood friend, Claudius, became the new emperor and extended Herod's rule to Judea and Samaria. Man, he had some friends in high places, didn't he? This guy was powerful. He was powerful and he had all of the authority vested in him to do basically however he pleased. Herod was powerful, only being outranked in power by the Roman emperor within his region. And in this historical account, he was so powerful that Herod was able to bring the Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon to their knees. That's how powerful he was, that he could make a decree and bring a city to its knees. For some reason, he was quarreling with these two cities. And the reason is unknown to us. 
Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and placed an embargo against them, banning all trade to and from these cities. And because Tyre and Sidon depended on food from Judea and Samaria, they knew what they needed to do. They needed to get somebody on the inside. You know, they played the game, the politics kind of game. And they had a mutual friend of Herod whose name was Blastus, who ultimately was Herod's chamberlain, and he was vouching for them. And now Herod sees another opportunity to not only bring the cities to his knees, but to show this city just how powerful he was. To show everybody just how incredible and how awesome of a king he was. We read in verses 21 and 22, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. And how big was Herod's head at this point? The voice of a God and not of a man. And he just accepts it. He just drinks it in. He just allows it to puff him up. You know what's really incredible about this account that we read in Scripture? It's not just recorded by Luke, but it's actually recorded by other historians as well. There's a man named Josephus, and he, res- he records a historical account in his book that he wrote, which was The Antiquities of the Jews. And he says, on the second day of the festival, Herod loved games. And he loved watching these games, and he loved putting himself in a position of power so everybody could see how awesome of a ruler he was. But it says, on the second day of the festival, Agrippa entered the theater at daybreak, clad in a robe made altogether of silver, of quite wonderful weaving. He's wearing this robe made of pure silver. Herod was so full of himself, and he knew that early in the morning, the sun would reflect off of his royal robes in a way that would dazzle the audience. And this guy, he's pretty good. He's got it going on. He, he knows what he's doing. And so as the morning sun comes up at daybreak, the first rays of the sun reflect off of his royal robe, and he gives this oration, and Josephus records the people saying, be gracious to us. These are the people of Tyre and Sidon. Be gracious to us. We have reverenced you as a human being, but moving forward, we confess you to be of more than mortal nature. He's immortal, right? This is the stuff we see in movies, watching gladiator kind of stuff. You know what I mean? This is the history that we read about, and we see these people in power, and we're amazed at how they ruled. Herod was a mighty man. And if he could bring entire cities to their knees and convince them that he was like a god, then what chance did the early church face in its vulnerable state? The church stood no chance. Similarly, what prospects does the church face in our culture today? Oof. It's not looking so great in some ways, does it? And we're, we're struggling as a church sometimes, aren't we, in America? What prospect does the church face in our culture? 
we barely survive the issue of masking. What happens when we face real persecution? What happens when we face something actually difficult? The church is really fragile. We are really fragile. Because the reality is, is that we are the underdogs. We always, has, we, always ha- we always have been and we always will be. We are the underdogs, but who doesn't love rooting for the underdog? Because even though Herod was as powerful as he was, all of God's enemies are worm food. Which brings me to my second point. Acts 12, 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory, give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Herod was turned into worm food. You know, it doesn't say it was because, it was because Herod came against the church. It doesn't say it was because Herod beheaded James, the brother of John, it says because he refused to give God the glory that God showed who was really in charge. That ultimately, Herod was just a man, dressed in fancy clothes, turned into worm food. You know, oddly enough, it's actually unclear how Herod died. It's, I love that about this passage, that we actually don't know much about Herod's death. There's kind of some interesting wording that Luke uses here. Luke, being a physician, doesn't even take time to give us all of the details. And Josephus, who we talked about earlier, records that a severe pain arose in his belly, which became so violent that he was carried into his palace where five days later he died. It's really interesting as you read in history. Josephus records it. Of course, you have to keep in mind that Josephus was hired by the Romans to make it look good. He was a Jew who was hired by Romans to kind of make Rome look good in his history. Because that's what happens in history, right? History is always adjusted to make whoever's writing the history look like the good guy, right? So Josephus records it as, as if Herod had saw, you can read this yourself, an owl. And he took it as being like a bad omen. And in that moment, a severe pain arose in his belly. What's clear is that Josephus saw something. Luke tells us the real story. Luke tells us that it was an angel of the Lord who struck him and that he died. So there's a lot of speculation surrounding Herod's death. death. But there's an interesting detail that I think we can find in these passages. I love this. Herod... The so-called king of the Jews ends up like all other people, dead and buried, despite his godlike persona. However, the true king of the Jews, Jesus Christ, was crucified, buried, and rose again. He's no longer in the grave. Amen. He's no longer in the grave because Herod was just a man. He was just a man. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Whereas Herod thought he was godlike, it turns out he was nobody but a footnote in history. And he was worm food. 
So it might appear at times, hear me out, that the church is failing. It's going to, in our lifetime, it's going to look like when we look around us, like the church is failing. And the reality is, because the church is filled with failures. I'm talking about us, okay? I'm talking about me, all right? The church is filled with people who mess up all of the time. Look around the room. Can you believe that the God of the universe chose this group of people at this time and entrusted them with the gospel? Can you believe that this is the group of people that God chose and entrusted with the gospel to advance the gospel in this world, in this region, at this place, at this time? I've gone to church for a long time. I've grown up in church. My dad was a pastor. I know how church works. I do. I might play dumb sometimes, but like, I know people. You know what I mean? Like, I've been around people long enough to kind of get a sense for how people really are. You've been to church too, and you know people who have given up on church because, ugh, I just can't deal with the people, right? We get this. We, 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 we understand how this works. I've gone to church for a long time, and sometimes I scratch my head and I think, what are we doing? Does anybody even know? Is any of this really making a difference? But as you read the book of Acts, we see that often it looks like the church is doomed to failure. Sharp disagreements, persecution, death, riots, imprisonments, divisions, and shipwrecks. In the moment where most of us live, these things are threatening and frightening and even deadly. However, they are all powerless to stop the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. The truth is that everyone who sets themselves up against the gospel will not prevail, and like Herod, they will end up as an embarrassing footnote in history as being nothing more than worm food. Which brings me to my final point. The best defense is a good offense. The best defense is a good offense. Acts chapter 12, verses 24 through 25. Listen, Luke writes about Herod, and he moves on. Doesn't even take time to talk about how incredible this was. It says, but the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name is Mark. As we are about to see in the coming chapter, right, that none of what happened in chapter 12 hindered the spread of the gospel or the resolve of the early church. The gospel is going to continue to move forward even when John or even when James is beheaded. The gospel doesn't stop moving forward. Even when Peter is imprisoned, the gospel doesn't stop moving forward. The gospel will prevail the word of God lasts forever. And kingdoms will fall and will rise, and kings will fall and rise. Country will fall. But the word of God will remain. And the word of God and the gospel will continue to advance, to advance. 
So as we're about to see that none of this in chapter 12 that we read about hindered the spread of the gospel, nor did it, did it stop the church from doing what the church knew it needed to do. On the contrary, the church knew their mission, and they knew what they needed to do next. They had to get back to work. They had to get back to work doing what it was that God put them on the earth to do. So let me be clear, when I say that the best defense is a good offense, I don't mean that there aren't times when we need to defend the gospel or defend against false teaching. That's going to happen. But what I am saying and what I believe we see from the example of the early church is that we must remain proactive instead of becoming passive. We need to keep moving forward. And we need to keep doing what it is that God called us to do. We need to keep taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. The school place, our workplace, our homes, our neighborhoods. That's our mission. If you want to know your purpose in life, your purpose is to make disciples. And to do that wherever God has placed you. That's your purpose. And we have to remain proactive We can't remain passive and sit back and try to protect ourselves or go into self-preservation mode. We need to continue to bring the battle to the enemy's front door instead of allowing ourselves to passively stand by, hoping that if we don't put up too much of a fight, then the enemy will leave us alone because it's never going to happen. If we don't bring the battle to him, he's going to bring the battle to us. And so I'd rather be on the offense, knowing full well that, yeah, I'm going to expect opposition, But I'd rather that than just wait around and act surprised when it happens. Because no matter what, the enemy is coming for us, which is why the best defense is a good offense. As we've learned, trials are a guarantee for every Christian. And we must be prepared for that and not let it stop us from fulfilling our God-given purpose. It will appear at times to the world and us that we are losing that we are outnumbered and we are overpowered. In this life and this world, we are operating behind enemy lines. We are the underdogs. However, all of God's enemies, like Herod, are worm food. So armed with that knowledge, let's step out in faith and take some risks for advancing the gospel so that we might take it to the end of the earth because the best defense is a good offense. Amen? We're going to prepare for communion. And so if Mark wants to go ahead and make his way uh, to the stage, he's going to play lightly. But I want to share one final thought before I finish. And we close with communion. Hopefully you have your communion cups. If you don't have one, I think we have some in the back there. But one final thought before I finish and we close with communion is that as I look at this passage, I'm really moved with God's concern for the lost. The church is constantly on the move. It's constantly advancing. And the Spirit of God is always in the front lines. You know what I mean? It started in Jerusalem, and it was established, and this is actually the last time we actually hear of Peter. Did you realize that? It's the last time we hear of Peter in the book of Acts. That's because he faithfully served wherever God called him. But what we're seeing is how the church advanced. We're seeing how the church was moving forward and how the church was focused on its mission that God had called it to, which was to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what we're called to do. 
And it seems to me, at least, that God is constantly expanding his church through the spreading of his word. And we see it now moving from Jerusalem to Antioch, and it expands out from Antioch. And then 2,000 years later, here you and I are today. And the gospel continues to advance, and the word of God continues to multiply, and God is now using you and I to be the ones who does it. The church is never confined to one place for very long. Just as soon as the church is established in a new region, we quickly see the church shifting to a new place. And when the church is persecuted, it's okay. It's all right. Because those who have come to know Christ are secure in him, even if it costs them their head. Man, I know it's hard when we see James beheaded. I wrestle with that a little bit. It's like, God, you really waited to free Peter, but you let James get killed? James is fine because James is with the Lord. And that's what it's going to take not to lose our heads. Don't, that's not what I'm saying. Don't lose your heads. <laughs> what I'm saying is it takes people who realize that, man, we're behind enemy lines here. We're going to face opposition. We're going to face setbacks. We're going to face difficulty. But instead of trying to shelter ourselves from the world, we're going to take the fight to the enemy. We're gonna take the battle to his front door because the church is best when it's on the offense. The moment a church turns inward and becomes defensive, it begins to try to do the work of God and it misses out on the mission for which it was created, which was to advance the gospel. So maybe today you have your doubts about the church too. Join the club. The church is filled with a group of messed up people, <laughs> broken people. And maybe you're one of those people and you're going through trials and you feel battered and you feel burned out. But let's remind ourselves that all of God's enemies are worm food. Our Lord and King has risen from the grave and is seated at the right hand of God. And he promised to raise us to new life as well. So let's remind ourselves today in communion what Jesus has done for us so we can get back to making some place for the kingdom, amen? I wanna see the church on the move. I don't wanna see us shrink back. I wanna see the people who are sitting in the pews be the ones that God uses to spread the gospel. You know what's crazy is we think about the people on the stage as the, being the ones who are talented and gifted and used of God, but it's the people who are in the pews who God has called to advance the gospel all over the Lehigh Valley. Did you forget that you're the ones who are gifted? Did you forget that you were equipped to do the work of the ministry? Did you forget that this is your mission and your calling too? Let's advance the gospel as the church. Let's work together and let's be reminded that, man, we don't need to be fighting amongst each other, but we need to be fighting against the enemy. We need to be advancing the gospel, amen? We're gonna, we're gonna go into communion. I wanna take a few moments here and, and Mark's gonna play It'll be brief, and as he's, as he's playing, would we just take a moment and search our hearts and just really ask ourselves, do we realize what Christ has done for us? My friend always told me, we have this huge safety net. Life is like walking on a tightrope. We have this huge safety net where even if we fall off, God catches us. So would you just step out in faith and trust God 
in an attempt to share his gospel and just see if he doesn't show up. See if God doesn't lead you to bring someone to know him. See if God doesn't want to save your neighbors. God wants to save my neighbors. He does, and he wants to save your neighbors, but he's going to use you to do it. I'm sorry, sorry. <laughs> Let's take a moment. Let's search our hearts and really remind ourselves of what Christ has done so that we can get back to doing what it is we're called to do. Amen. This one thing we all have in common, Jesus Christ. Amen. I don't know what your background is. I don't know what you're going through, where you've been, what you've faced in life. But the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Amen. The one thing that brings us all together as the church and reunites us and knits us together is the person of Jesus this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the bread together. It goes on to say then in verse 25, in the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the cup together. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you. God, I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And God, I thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. God, that he is alive, that he is seated at your right hand, and that we can have new life by putting our faith in him. God, I pray that as we're reminded and we remember what it is that you've done for us, Lord, that it's our responsibility then to go and make disciples of all nations 
to share the gospel. And Lord, we know that it will continue to multiply and that it will continue to advance because your word is forever. God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would remind us, yes, we are the underdogs, but all of your enemies are worm food. God, that we don't have to be afraid of anything. And so we can make plays for the kingdom. We can step out in faith because the best defense is a good offense, God. I thank you for this time. Let me pray this in Jesus' name.